Well, it's a while since we've sung that uh, old hymn. It's a great old hymn. One of the things we're going to see this morning from Ruth is uh, God's providence. Just right up front, I'm keen that we are mindful that God's providence is not something that is at work only when the sun shines. Uh, God's providence is just as much at work when the clouds come And uh, the third verse of that hymn communicates that very powerfully. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. Well, tuck that away. Now, turn to Ruth chapter 2. And uh, we're in part 2 of a four-week study in the book of Ruth. I'd encourage you to listen online if you miss a week. Last week, do listen online and uh, for the subsequent weeks. Here's what I think is the message of the book of Ruth. Every Bible book has a message. Every Bible book has a teaching point in it. Here's what I think the message of Ruth is. Trust and obey God and you will have security and reason to hope. I guess that can come to us uh, corporately as a church, trust and obey God, and you can have security and reason to hope, or, and this would be the primary application of the book of Ruth, individually, trust and obey God, and you can have security and reason to hope. Now, just uh, a little recap of part one of the story, Ruth chapter one, Uh, The title, if you like, of part one or scene one or chapter one might be turning back to God. And the focus is on one family. Elimelech is uh, the husband, his wife, Naomi. Their two sons, Malin and Kilian. And Elimelech made a bad decision. He turned away from God and he took his family away from Bethlehem in Judah to the country of Moab. And his reason for leaving was humanly explicable. There was a famine in Bethlehem, and he took his family to find uh, food. And the point of that, I think, is that when people turn away from God, there are a hundred reasons, humanly speaking, to justify that decision. But he made a bad decision. How? Because God had said, no, stay here, don't go to that country, and trust me, repent, and I will provide for you. And over the years, things began to go wrong in very significant and sober ways in that family's life. Elimelech died. Naomi was left a widow. Their children, Malin and Killian, married Moabite women. Ten years of stability passed, and then tragically they died, leaving Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth widowed without children, without security, uh, without Um, any hope at all. Now, Naomi, and we read this in chapter 1, sees that what has happened to them as a family is God's judgment. Now, I said that with real caution last week, but that's her theology. That's her assessment. God has dealt harshly with us because we have disobeyed him. And we need to be very sure of ourselves to dismiss that theology as wrong. So what will they do? What will Naomi and Ruth 
And Orpah, Naomi, and her two daughters-in-law, these three widows who have lost everything, do. What will they do when they hit rock bottom? What do people do when they hit rock bottom? They either do one of two things. They turn away from God even more, or they turn to God. Now, Naomi turned back to God. She was a believer. She was a Christian, if you like, in our understanding of that. She turned back to God, and there was great cost in her decision. She went back to Bethlehem. She would have wondered what the people who had remained would say. And of course, she got back, and they said, is this Naomi? Is this the one that we all knew as the pleasant one? That's what her name means. Look at her face. Look at her life. She's bitter. And she went back because it was right, but bitter in her soul towards God. That's very real. And uh, Ruth and Naomi, uh, Ruth and Orpah, her two daughters-in-law, went back with her to Bethlehem. And then there was a fork in the road. And Ruth went with Naomi and Orpah went back. Orpah went to her gods in Moab, and Ruth went to Naomi's god. Ruth turned to God. And in this story, these two characters stand, Naomi, someone who turns back to God, a believer who turns back to God, who's drifted away from God. And Ruth is someone who turns to God for the first time. And these wonderful words in chapter 1 from Ruth for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. Her words are of covenant commitment. Now, the application, therefore, of the book of Ruth, or the application of part one, chapter one of the book of Ruth, and uh, it must hit home in this room. It must hit home online. Lots of people listen online. Don't know who they are. The internet's a wonderful way to get the gospel into the globe. Who's listening online? Hello. This must hit home. The applications of chapter one turn back to God. Always there are people in a church listening or online who have turned away from God for all sorts of humanly explicable reasons. Tragedy. Despair. It's tough. They've turned away, and the message of the book of Ruth is turn back. Must be someone here. Or, like Ruth, turn to God for the first time. It makes no sense given what you might have to give up in your family, in your life. It makes no sense to turn to God. Maybe there's somebody listening to this sermon or will listen to it in a country in the world where it just makes no sense, humanly speaking, to leave that country and go to God's kingdom. The costs are too great, yet people do all the time because God's irresistible call is on their lives. And in all sorts of ways in our culture in the West, it makes no sense to turn to God. 
Naomi turned back, Ruth turned to God for the first time. That's part one of the story. Today we're on part two, chapter two. Let's uh, read it together. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was uh, Boaz. And uh, our ears as readers are meant to pick up at this moment. They've introduced somebody who's a relative of the person who has lost everything. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. They're obviously Anglicans. And Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back from Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell in her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you should go out with this young woman, lest in order another field you might be assaulted. 
So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, you'll see on the outline in the service sheet, have a look at that. What are we going to learn from this chapter? Book of Ruth has multiple lines in it. You've got to get one line and stick to it. Okay, this is what we're going to learn. We're going to learn about Ruth's experience of God's saving grace. And of course, might be, it might be just what's happening to you. You might have been a Christian for a long time. It's about what it means to become or be a believer. And then right at the end, just for a couple of minutes, we're going to look at Naomi's experience of God's restoring grace, the person who comes back to God. And uh, underpinning it all is their trust and obedience, but uh, I'll bring up point three under both points, one and, and two. But let's pray for God's help. These are wonderful, wonderful real events that, that really can speak powerfully to us. So let's ask him to help us. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that the experience of your saving grace might steal upon someone in this room or someone listening. We pray that the experience of your restoring grace might steal upon someone. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, the opening verse of chapter 2 functions like an orator's comment inserted into the middle of an unfolding story. And its purpose is to cue the reader as to the central role that Boaz will play in the drama. And uh, you get some pretty strong hints. The name Boaz means in him is strength and grace. He is described as a worthy man or a man of standing. He is a person of impeccable honor and character. And in the writer's mind, there is an implied contrast between Boaz, introduced at the beginning of chapter 2, and Elimelech, introduced at the beginning of chapter 1. Elimelech had turned away from God. He had not trusted. He had not obeyed. In contrast, Boaz was a man whose life was characterized by godly obedience. But while there is a contrast, there is a link between Elimelech and Boaz. Boaz is a relative of her husband's, that is Naomi's husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. And Boaz, as we will see in the story, is a kinsman of Elimelech. And he will become, as the story unfolds, Ruth's kinsman redeemer. He is the one, as the story unfolds, who will save Ruth and Naomi. He is the one in whom and through whom God's saving grace, God's restoring grace is extended to Ruth and to Naomi. And of course, and we'll see this as the story unfolds, and we would see this if we unfolded the story of God's revelation in Scripture, or we can see this if we look at the unfolding of God's salvation story in history. He is a shadow or a pointer or a picture of a person who was more worthy. A person who was better, who was perfect, who is a kinsman 
of God and a redeemer of humanity, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of all humanity. Now, here's a danger of preaching on the book of Ruth. At this point, we just take this story and see how it paints a wonderful picture of Jesus. And it does. But we forget that Boaz redeemed these people in real life. And Jesus Christ redeems people in real life. And Ruth experienced God's salvation as she gleaned in these fields. You might be about to experience God's salvation if you sit here and listen. Or be reminded of what you have experienced. And almost certainly, some of us will need reminded of it more than others. Because if you look into your life, you will see not sunshine, but mist and rain and drizzle and wind and storms. And you will trace, as you reflect on God's grace, a rainbow through the rain. Now, what was Ruth's experience of God's saving grace? Let me just touch on a number of things here. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabite. The writer keeps telling us that she's not a Jew. She's a Moabite. He's not having a go at her. He's just reminding us that she's not one of the people that you think salvation would be given to. And, of course, she is included. She is not part of God's chosen people, and yet she is included among the people of God. She experienced God's saving grace. And, of course, this is a pointer to the day in which we live when Jesus offers salvation to all humanity, to people of every language and nation of the earth. Anyone and everyone who comes to Jesus in trust and obedience for salvation. Now, many of us here are Christians. You are thinking at the moment that what the Bible is talking about is people on the far-flung corners of the earth who have not yet heard about the Lord Jesus, who think they are not going to be included, but they can be. That's what you're thinking. But you are the application of this. For we were not part of God's chosen people then, any of us here. And yet, we are people here who represent every tribe and nation of the earth. You and I are like Ruth, the Moabite, who had no right, no legitimacy, no expectation that God's saving grace would steal upon her soul and life, and yet it has, and it has upon yours. What right, what status, what calls do you have on God? None. And yet, he has saved you. Just a a word to anyone here who is a child of a believer. Let me encourage you always to remember that God has no grandchildren. Only children. You will not inherit salvation because your parents are Christians. You must receive it for yourself through faith. God's saving grace is for all. It's for you, it's for me. 
And every time you reflect on an aspect of God's saving grace in this story, your knees should bend a little. And of course, we get to that in the story. Ruth falls on her knees. Your knees should bend a little. When you realize, but for the grace of God, you would be somewhere in Moab, and yet you're here. Now, let me spend a little longer on this verse 3, God's providence. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come. Isn't that great? She just happened to come. She just kind of came. And uh, it's not chance, of course, it's the sovereign providence of God that she came to this field of all fields belonging to Boaz. And God's providence, now here's the point, God's providence did not start working at this point. The hidden hand of God that sometimes reveals himself, I guess, has been at work in all the circumstances that led Ruth and Naomi to this point. In his judgment is God's providential hand at work. It has to be. In their loss, in the terrible tragedy they experienced in bringing them back to Bethlehem, Naomi's testimony, chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord has brought me back. When? At the end of chapter 1, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, Maybe you're here or listening and you're not a Christian. You have a real interest in the things of God, but you cannot say you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Perhaps, though, you're coming to a realization that you need to deal with sin and that you cannot escape from sin because you're human. Perhaps you're coming to realize that you cannot do anything and you can find forgiveness and assurance in Jesus. Now, why are you here this morning? What are the circumstances that have brought you to this point in your life? Has it all just happened by chance, or is the hidden hand of God at work? Divinely ordering events and circumstances. Maybe you've sat through hundreds of sermons, but all of a sudden today you find you're listening to one. God's providence means the divine ordering of things. And always remember that in salvation, the initiative never rests primarily with us seeking God when it suits us in our time frame and at a particular period of life when we think it might just be good. The initiative always rests with God, who sent his son, the Lord Jesus, who said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You will not know, you cannot fathom, you cannot discern, and you cannot tell God when you want Jesus to show up and to open your eyes. You can't. Ruth just happened to come into this field. You may have just happened to come into church. You may have just happened to click the MP3 file and listen to this sermon. And for those of us who are Christians, do we trust in the providence of God? Do we believe that the hidden hand of God is at work in our life? I think probably as Christians, we think that it sometimes is. But 
it has to be happening in, in our lives all of the time. So you can't step out of God's providence if you're a Christian. You can step out of his will, but his providence, we trust, will maybe even bring you to an end of yourself and bring you back. But you cannot step out of God's providence. You cannot go anywhere in this world if you are a Christian and not have God with you, not have God able to come and deal with your life in a way that turns you back to him. Here's a verse from Romans. I've chosen this because it's about groaning in life. And I want you to see that God's providence hits home in the groaning stuff. This is the verse that I would quote least easily to anyone who is suffering. And yet it's a verse that's quoted often to people. You know, it's uh, the verse in Romans, for we know that in all things... God works together for the good of those who love him according to his purpose. That's not a verse that I encourage you just to stick on a card and blindly whack in the post. Apart from the fact that it's true. Was the providence of God at work in Ruth's life when she just happened to come into that field in Bethlehem? Yes. Was the providence of God at work in Ruth's life when she made that decision on the fork of the road to go that way? Was the providence of God at work in Ruth's life when she married one of Elimelech and Naomi's children? Was the providence of God at work in Ruth's life when her parents gave birth to her? Yes. The point is, when God reveals his hand, and we'll come to this at the end, it's letting the cat out. When God reveals his hand in your life, you must trust him. When the providence of God comes from the subsurface to the surface, you must trust him. This week is my parents' uh, wedding anniversary, their golden wedding. We've got a party arranged for them. And my parents, my father is, like uh, many of his generation, pretty IT literate, yeah? And he's produced this presentation. It's taken them months to do it over the last 50 years. And as I was watching it uh, and preparing to say something about it with my brother, hindsight reveals many things. Hindsight reveals God's providence. My parents' wedding photograph, they look really dashing. 50 years ago this Saturday, you know these wedding photos, the old ones of sort of 30 people all in a line. Not a single Christian. No time for God. And then a picture a few years later of my father's first class at Harriet's as a physics teacher and a club that he ran, and the picture of a man called Jim, who was a pupil, a six-year pupil at the time, just a few years younger than my father, who was a Christian, who a number of years later shared the gospel with them, and they were converted. And then my mother's bridesmaid, a lovely, clear, bright Christian who died when she was 35. 
and my father's brother, who died when he was 36 of throat cancer, who became a Christian just as he died. And now you look, and you see a whole generation of grandchildren hearing the gospel. The providence of God. But there had to be an occasion in all of that when the hidden hand of God surfaced that people had to trust and believe. There has to be an occasion in your life when the rain is raining, when you remember that the providence of God that revealed his hand and caused you to trust him has not deserted you in the rain. And you do not turn away from him. Now, let me speed up. We're fine. It's only 11.29. We'll be done by quarter two, definitely. We'll be having coffee. Ruth's experience of God's grace was personal, providence. She was included. And, and personal, you know, how does Boaz address her? The Lord be with you, the Lord bless you. They're Anglicans, as I said. The Lord be with you. The Lord also be with you. And, and he calls her, my daughter, my daughter. And how does Boaz address Ruth, my daughter? How does God address you this morning? That's his child. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? So as you are in the middle of some dark rain cloud in your life, you remember that God has saved you, that his providence has not deserted you, that you are his child. And Boaz says, whose young woman is this? I think there's a spark of love. This is a real story as well. Just caught Emma and Callum's eye. There you go. You smiled at me just at that moment. There, that is there, and I could kind of launch into our kind of relationship talk for 10 minutes. We'll not do that. But he does love her and he marries her. God's grace that steals upon her provides for her and protects her. How does he provide for her? Well, he, he says, keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that you are reaping and go after them. Gleaning is something that was enshrined in the law of God, but, but, but it means you pick up all the scrappy bits. Yeah? But he says, look, follow after the people who are binding the sheaves and, and get the best bits that fall off. Yeah, and, and then he gives her a meal. He says, come and have my roasted grain. He gives her his roasted grain. He gives her of the very best of the banquet. And he protects her. He says, look, don't, don't go to another field. And I guess in the ancient world, young women like Ruth gleaning in fields, it wasn't kind of safe. That's what's going on. He says, don't go. I've told the workers in the field to protect you. And what does God's grace in your life do? It provides for you and protects for you. And I say, no, it doesn't, because I don't feel he's providing for me, given what's going on in my life, and I don't feel he's protecting me. What does that mean, though? It means things like this. And, and maybe there's somebody listening in a country like Sudan. We were praying for Sudan who by God's power are being guarded 
through faith for a salvation that will be revealed when Jesus Christ returns. Guarding your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Provision and protection for the believer means that when all is said and done, all is well with your soul. If you have Jesus Christ, and these are amongst my favorite words in the Bible, the most familiar. If the Lord is my shepherd, I lack uh, nothing. The reason these uh, are amongst my favorite words, I'm always trotting them out at funerals, or usually when people are dying, because, you know, if the Lord is your shepherd, you lack nothing, and as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with you, his rod to fight off the assailants of doubt and his staff to comfort you. Provision, protection, and abundant grace. When she rose to glean, verse 15, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also pull out some from the bundles. Isn't that great? You know, pull out some from the bundles and give it to her. Do not rebuke her. It's way beyond the letter of the law. It's a God of grace. One of the things that I think we'll never get our heads around this side of eternity is that God's grace is unending. God's reservoir of grace has no bottom to it. So Ruth gleaned, verse 17, in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of uh, barley. How much is an ephah of barley? Does anyone know? It's a tenth of a homer. Apparently, an ephah of barley was the maximum load, and I'm reading this, the maximum load an average-sized donkey could carry. How much is that? 90 kilograms. That's a lot of barley. Now, the point is that she gathered about 10 kilograms of barley. It's just way more, way more. Now, you're thinking here, why, why, why is God's grace so abundant? What has he given you? Well, he's given you adoption, redemption, forgiveness, eternity, peace, a heavenly father, a brother in Jesus Christ, Christian brothers and sisters all over the world, He's given you the knowledge that even if your life was to be taken from you tonight, you would be eternally safe. That's a lot. Now, let me try and begin to move to a close. I've already said, and of course the story makes this point more powerfully than me, that there will be some people here this morning or listening who, like Ruth, have turned to God for the first time and are experiencing God's saving grace. Or there will be people for whom that is happening. And it's stealing on your mind and heart that God's grace has come to you, that he wants to save you, that you see God's hand of providence at work in your life. And you're conscious of the personal nature of God's saving grace. You're understanding what it means to have your needs met in Jesus Christ. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking you're a Christian, you're switching off, let me just ask you to make sure you are a Christian. You know, there's familiarity of this stuff that, that you're feeling God's providence, you're feeling the personal touch of God, and you count the blessings that you are offered in Christ, and you're beginning to think, look, 
It's overwhelming the abundance of his grace in my life. Well, here's the deal. Don't let that moment pass. Why? Because Ruth didn't. Look at verses 10 to 13. This is always there with God's grace and often not there when it's spoken of. Why have I found favor in your eyes? Why me? Now, there is the anatomy of a soul that is about to be converted. Why me? Not, yes, I know it should be me. Why me? If you've never asked that question of God when you became a Christian, you're not a Christian. You can't be. No reason that it should be you. All that you have done, Boaz answered, for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me how you left your father and mother in your native land. In other words, why you? Because you turned to me. Why you? Because you turned to me. And because you came under my wings and took refuge. The answer to the question, why should I give you salvation? God is asking all of us, The answer to that question is only this, that I have come under your wings and taken refuge. All that God asks of us is that we come under his wings and take refuge. But you must. You need to do it. And then... Naomi's experience of God's restoring grace. This comes much more to the fore in chapter 4, as we'll see later. Sam has the best chapter to preach. Chapter 4, a wonderful chapter where she holds the baby in her arms. And she doesn't know what we know is that that baby would have a boy called David who would become the king of God's people, who would have a greater son who would become the king of the world to become your savior of mine this morning. Naomi is absolutely bitter and despairing. If there's one person who cries out why in her heart to God more than any other in the Old Testament, it's her. She's bitter, she's bitter, she's bitter. And that's real. I wouldn't dare write to Naomi with Romans 8, 31 on a card. I'd do it to Ruth, but not Naomi. She's too sore. And then she sees Ruth coming back and her poor donkey buckling under the weight. And then the most wonderful words, I think, in the book of Ruth. Where did you glean today, verse 18? And where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. Gosh, our luck's changing. And Ruth says, the man's name with whom I worked is Boaz. Now, Try to imagine Naomi's response to that. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of hers and one of her redeemers. She knows then, I think, that Boaz will be their kinsman redeemer. He will be their refuge, their security, their future, and their hope. And of course, Boaz, as we saw, points us 
to Christ. Now, we'll come to this in chapter 4, but if you write Naomi has turned away from God, and if you turn back to Jesus, think of it like this. Naomi had no expectation that the people of God would give her a place at the table again. Yeah? Because she left. People who drift away from church, again and again I say to them, come on, come back. They'll say, I can't come back. What will people think of me? You heard that from people? And Boaz knows, and he wants to redeem them. He never crosses his mind that it's not the right thing to do. And if you come back to God, he doesn't even cross his mind to consider whether or not he will extend his restoring grace to you. Now, there's so much more to come in parts three and four, but that's for another day. Let me leave you with these words, the beautiful picture in your minds of taking refuge under the wings of God, the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And the psalm, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these wonderful, wonderful pictures of redemption in Jesus Christ. But we thank you that it's not a picture on a postcard or a picture hanging on a wall, but it's real because Jesus Christ is real, flesh and blood like Boaz, our Savior, our Redeemer. Thank you, Lord, that by your grace and mercy, Many of us here have come to take refuge under your wings. Thank you for whatever it was that prompted us to trust. Thank you for whatever it was that prompted us to turn to you in faith. Thank you for the people you put in our path. Thank you that salvation is for us. Thank you for your providence. Thank you that it's personal. Thank you that it protects. Thank you that it provides. Thank you that it's abundant. And if the grace of God is stealing upon a soul in this room, help them, Lord God, to trust you for their life. Do not let this moment pass. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Turn to God. Take refuge in him. Come under the shadow of his wings. Find salvation and everlasting security, whether young or old, whoever we are, there is a place at your table for all who trust. And if, Lord, we have turned away and want to come back, we pray that your loving kindness and compassion would steal upon us and say to us that you welcome us with open arms. There is no recrimination. There is no discipline to be had other than that that we have experienced. For you are a loving God who welcomes us home. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus, who is at work in our lives in ways that we cannot see. But he is here.
He's all around us. And he's good and kind. And we pray in his name. Amen.